Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sight, Sound, and Story podcast. I'm Josh After, owner and founder of Manhattan Edit Workshop, and on this show we host conversations with cinematographers and editors in the hopes that filmmakers young and old will be able to learn something new and hone their own craft. Last week we had cinematographer Bruce Logan, who's an incredible cinematographer who got his start on 2001 The Space Odyssey before he went on to guide the visual effects of Tron, another sci-fi classic, so check that one out if you've missed it. The panel for today's episode features Robert McLaughlin, ASC-CSC. He goes by Rob, and Rob is the mind behind the cinematography on some of the biggest shows on television right now. He's worked as a cinematographer on multiple episodes of Westworld, Game of Thrones, and also Ray Donovan. And, I mean, I walked into the panel not knowing a lot about Ray Donovan, but once I saw the scenes Rob had picked out on the big screen, I knew I had to go home and check it out. This panel was back in December 2018, and Rob had a lot to say about the state of cinematography today and how new tech and new challenges surrounding this modern golden age of TV have impacted his craft. And the behind-the-scenes stories he tells, let me just say, wow. I think a lot of us have seen The Red Wedding on Game of Thrones, or at least heard about it, but Rob takes the time here to explain how he used the lighting in that castle to lull everybody watching into a false sense of security in that space, only to take that all away and kill off some major characters, because that's what Game of Thrones does. The other voice you'll be hearing is cinematographer David Leitner, who was the moderator for the panel. For those of you who don't know David, he was the cinematographer on the 2001 documentary Trembling Before God, and he has a really keen eye for smart cinematography, along with an in-depth knowledge of lenses, lighting, and recording file types. He asks all the right questions here so that we find out more about the who, where, when, and why behind some of the shots that have made the biggest shows on TV so compelling. The panel starts with a review of how Rob got to where he is today, then the two of them discuss Ray Donovan, Westworld, and they top it all off by talking about Game of Thrones. So I won't keep you waiting any longer. Let's get right to it. This is Bringing the Look of Cinema to the Small Screen with cinematographer Robert McLaughlin. This is exciting every year. This is, uh, last year I did this same panel, and uh, we interviewed Igor Martinovich, if you were here. He had done House of Cards, uh, Night Of, and Wormwood. Uh, we also interviewed uh, Martin Algren, who also had done House of Cards, uh, Darede- uh, Marvel's Daredevil, and uh, this year he's shot Altered Carbon. And I'm really pleased to be able to do this again because this is an era of peak TV, as we all know. Uh, I h- watch far too much of it and am inspired endlessly. There's so much creativity um, on television now. In fact, I like to call it episodic filmmaking because I see uh, I still attend a lot of cinema uh, but I see work equal to that uh, on the big screen on the on the medium screen it's not a small screen anymore this year as part of this series uh, the new age of TV bringing the look of cinema to the small screen or the medium screen um, I'm very pleased to introduce the estimable uh, Robert McLaughlin. Um, we're in for a treat tonight. Um, Rob, born in San Francisco, but grew up in Vancouver, uh, started a production company um, initially in the late 70s? 79, yes. Um, after he had graduated from, you went to Simon Fraser in the film and television, or film and communications department. Such as it was, yes. <laughs> it was a uh, new university in founded uh, Omni Film Productions in Vancouver afterwards. Uh, you produced, directed, and photographed documentaries, um, including award-winning environmental films for Greenpeace, uh, films for the BBC and the National Film Board. Um, you also managed to make 350 commercials thereabouts. Of, of varying quality. <laughs> but that's a pretty wide range of experience until you decided to chuck all of that and pursue dramatic cinematography to be exclusively a cinematographer for drama. Um, Your filmography is extremely impressive, and I use the term filmography. Uh, Close to 50 theatrical and television movies, probably more than that, I'm guessing. Uh, Over 550 episodes of television, including uh, MacGyver uh, in the late 80s. The original. And Millennium in the the 1990s. um, For Game of Thrones, you've heard of that show? Uh, He shot one of the most famous episodes of television ever, The Red Wedding, (laughs) which we're going to discuss a little bit later. 
in addition to possibly the biggest, costliest episode of TV ever, which is the spoils of war. Yeah, it's most expensive episode ever until the next season starts. So <laughs> I, can, I, can, I, I can sit on those laurels for another four months. Now, that's not all. His other TV credits include, you may have heard of Westworld for HBO and uh, Ray Donovan for Showtime. Um, for which he also directed several episodes. In fact, you're currently supervising cinematographer and producer and episode director of season six, if I got that right. That's right. Um, you belong to both the U.S. and Canadian uh, camera unions. Uh, you're a member of both the DGA and the Directors Guild of Canada. Mm -hmm. And you're also a member of both the ASC and the Canadian Society of Cinematographers. What have you not? A lot of dues. <laughs> 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 I, I mean, I'm just, I, I, I don't know what to say, and I'm usually not without words. Uh, that's so impressive. I've just sort of recently realized that um, somewhere in there I probably should have taken a little more time off, but um, I'm doing that now, so. And you're in New York now because of Ray Donovan. I am. They moved the show here this season. Um, to uh, keep the star happy, and uh, it's actually really reinvigorated the show. It's definitely the best season we've ever done, and um, I'd been living in L.A. for quite a few years at that point, and um, he said, you, you know, do you, do you want to go with the show to New York? And I said, yeah, absolutely. New York, excellent. Let's go. Williamsburg. Williamsburg. <laughs> Didn't think I'd love it as much as I do, but I do. So um, we have a series of clips to show, and I thought we'd just dive right into them because we can uh, have a discussion after each clip. Uh, I have looked at all the clips. Your low-light cinematography is especially impressive. So keep an eye out for those instances, and we'll be discussing how some of that was done. Um, I believe the first episode is from Ray Donovan. Holds up pretty well on the big screen. Not bad, yeah. It's always, <laughs> it's always a relief. Uh, better than the days of projecting some 16 millimeter that you shot for television, that's for sure. Yeah. In fact, if I was thinking watching this, the televisions I grew up with wouldn't have been able to reproduce this because the subtlety, the, 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 the low key light levels, when Ray Donovan is walking up that staircase, there's virtually no light on him. He's almost a silhouette. Yeah, we had no light in there at all. We just uh, glowed the uh, windows from outside a little bit, and that was it. But that takes, that takes balls, if you know what I mean, doesn't it? Not on digital so much. And I think one of the great things about digital, and you, you see much more quote-unquote ballsy cinematography since digital came along, and I, I realized that on the, on the first uh, digital show I worked on, which was a couple of episodes of a, of a series that, um, uh, gosh, probably about uh, back around 2003 or so, um, and I realized um, we, were, we were shooting with the, with the early digital uh, uh, betas, and um, w with, a, with a good CRT on set, and I realized that um, I could go even deeper than I ever dared to with film, because you know, you didn't have to worry about the things you had to worry about with going really dark with film, which was, what if there's an anomaly in the film stock? What if the soup's tired in the lab? Um, that one could really get you. Um, you know, or if the, you know when they printed or processed it, you know they didn't they didn't find something that was in there. So, um, digital's great for low light. The fog fog level was too high and it went noisy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it just looked like hell. Yeah, but let's just be clear. This was shot with an Alexa, I'm guessing. Uh, with Alexa, yes, on ProRes. ProRes uh, with a log gamma. Yep. For the nerds in the audience, which I barely understand. Personally. Don't b don't believe them. <laughs> so not with RAW. No. And not in 4K. Almost nobody shoots with RAW or 4K. Um, well, well I, I I take that back. Um, um, certainly not in 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 RAW. Uh, it's just too much data. The, the post just doesn't want to have to deal with it, and I don't. I really don't think that you have to. Um, HBO Game of Thrones doesn't shoot raw. Oh, occasionally will shoot raw if it's a big important uh, plate that's going to have a lot of uh, digital work done to it, and they need the resolution. But they don't either. And um, a few years ago, I was invited to IBC in, in in Amsterdam, which is the big trade show there, and. Airy blew up um, some some uh, material from the Red Wedding, which was you know had been done th about three years before that. We we even you know our, our resolution had advanced since then, 
they blew it up to 4K and projected it on a 60-foot screen, and the resolution just absolutely knocked my socks off, and that was off of not even, you know, it was barely 2K. Let's be clear, the Arri Alexa is not a 4K camera. No. That's the subtext to what we're discussing here. Right. 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 Um, and now, uh, you know, we were talking beforehand about the new Dolby Vision system, which you can just keep shooting the way you have been, um, and if you do your post and your, and your finish with the Dolby Vision um, system, it's fantastic. It finds, first of all, th what I found was that it finds a, a, a couple, at least a couple more stops of latitude in your um, material. But not only that, when that signal goes out to a Dolby Vision equipped television, which are now readily available at Costco or wherever, the TV recognizes that signal and it will project exactly what you transferred and, and, and what you intended it to look like, which is after 40 years um, going nuts at, at, at what it looked like on the TV. And, and those days are coming to an end and it couldn't be better. Dolby Vision, for those of you who um, are not familiar with it, is a high dynamic range format. It's one of several that are currently vying in the marketplace. There's never just one new standard. There's always at least three. And with Dolby Vision, uh, you, you took material that had already been shot. We took one of our episodes from season six of, of Ray Donovan and, and retransferred it with through their system and, um, and, and then you know played the two of them back side by side. And, and I was extremely I'm more impressed by it than I, I have been by anything, I, th I think, since I took the first Alexa out of the box. Now, the point being that cameras are capturing 12, 13, 14, 15 stops now. Almost all cameras can do that. But the television displays we watch can not show that many. They can show six, seven stops if you're lucky. Uh, there are ways to, to use uh, log gammas and whatnot and different gammas to, to bring the highlights down, but you still have to pick and choose what part of the image you, you get to preserve within what's viewable. Exactly right. Just like when you're, you know, printing, you know, doing normal photochemical printing, you have to decide, you know, whether it was the top end of the scale or the bottom end. So from the, f the, sh the shadow detail to the highlights, a television, a conventional television, what we've all got at home can present this much. But Dolby Vision can present this much, and all of a sudden, darker shadow detail and much brighter highlight information can be presented to the viewer all at the same time. Based on what you had shot, taking no special, uh, making no special arrangements, you just shot it normally. Right. But it then goes through Dolby Vision in post-production. That's right. So you don't have to change the way you work on set, which is really great. And we're hoping to use it, um, I'm hoping to talk them into doing it, uh, using it next season. While we're on the topic, it just so happens that uh, about a week ago, the specifications for the digital cinema version of HDR, high dynamic range, uh, were put forward in draft specification. The problem is a Dolby Vision display, television, can get up to uh, what's called 1,000 nits or 2,000 nits. That's a, that's a measure of brightness. Uh, it's candelas per square meters, if you want to get technical, but we just call them nits. I don't know where that comes from. No, you, yeah, but they're I, I really darn the bright. Like weeks ago. They're darn bright, right? Yeah. And so when you see an image on Do a Dolby Vision screen, what you'll notice is the highlights are really bright. It doesn't mean the midtones are brighter. The whole image doesn't rise up and get brighter. Just the highlights get brighter, and they have detail in them. And they have detail. That you can see for the first time. So what about cinema screens? Well, the problem is that projectors that we now use, the 2K and 4K projectors, can't get that bright. So if they can't get that bright, they can't show the high dynamic range. So what's the solution? What the, the DCI Digital Cinema Initiative that gave us DCPs, these, this new draft specification, they want the br high brightness at 500 nits. But the projectors, not even the laser, RGB laser projectors can do that. So what's the solution? And believe it or not, it's a gigantic emissive screen. Because if you shoot something now, one of these episodes, you shoot a series, um, a season's worth of something, and you, and, and you then go, and in Dolby Vision, you make a high dynamic range version that you're really happy with. Um, if that ever made it into a theater, it would look dull looking because it, wouldn't, it couldn't even reproduce what you could do in your living room with a Dolby Vision set, enabled set, right? 
So the, right. s the cinema people have to come up with something that's going to match that. And I'm just giving you a sneak peek into what's coming down the line. And, and cinematographers go back and forth on whether they like HDR. Most of them do, I find. Um, I do. That's all I know. <laughs> I've decided. So these last two clips, um, the, the first two interior scenes were done on the stage at Sony Studios. And um, that particular, I didn't have access to a lot of stuff, but we wanted to have an assortment of stuff. That was um, just done on a, on, on, on a set with a, um, we had, it, it, it didn't play there, but um, uh, Sony doesn't allow car, uh, cars actually running in the stages, but um, we're now allowed to drive uh, electric cars back and forth outside on the street. And we had a, a translate made that matched the actual um, exterior, so it worked incredibly seamlessly between shooting the exteriors on the going in. As, as, as one old producer I used to work with called them his, your your gazintas and gazautas, um, when you're on the exterior, and then and then you know combining that with the inside. And and part of the theme of Ray Donovan in L.A. at least was ever-present sunshine and a lot of reflections. And um, and 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 the other thing with the show is and the reason I've stuck with it way longer than I ever have with any other series is that the standing orders is that um, everybody in post and, and in the terms of the color timing is just to make me happy. And you don't get that very often as a DP. And, um, and, and they also embrace, a, you know, letting stuff play in wide shots like that shot in the shrinks office where, you know, you're just, you're just there. And, th and they, they cut back to that and bigger shots quite a bit. So it's, it's satisfying because you're not, it's just not a bunch of faces saying words all day long, you know, all through the entire episode. You can actually get out and get a little bigger and a little bit more cinematic. Now, obviously, that sequence by the river was even more so, but then it was also the last sequence. It was, it was the last scene in the last season, and that, that closed out, that scene closed out the season. The stuff on the rooftop was all shot at Sony on a set before we came out to New York to do all our, our uh, location work. And I just, I, I, I knew it was gonna be, we were gonna be shooting Dusk for Dawn and um, just kinda had to just eyeball it on the, on the set against the green screen, uh, hoping that the light would match whatever it was that we encountered when we, when we got out on location in, in New York. And then the, uh, the scene down by the river was tough because you know everything takes a long time to do, and you're trying to make the most of. We're again we we're shooting dusk for for dawn, and um, what we did was the second the sun had gone down, we started shooting, and it was still like really bright. But I got the vis effects department on board, and this is why I think we were we were talking earlier about th it's it's really important to be really good, have a really good relationship with VizFX and with the art department because it's, it's really gonna, it can really make or break you. And in this case, what it did was it bought us a bunch more shooting time. Um, we started shooting when it was actually really quite bright out, but the lights on the bridges and the, and the buildings weren't really reading. On those ones, we agreed with the VizFX department that they were gonna punch up, we'll, we after we printed it all down to match what we were gonna get right before it was too dark to shoot, uh, that they were going to uh, punch up the uh, the lights on the bridges and so forth and give it a little bit of snap so that it would match what it looked like when we got to the shots later on that we were sh actually shooting at the optimal time. But at the optimal time, usually you've only got time to do a couple of setups and we had to do quite a few. And um, it ended up, you know, that, that, that uh, uh, relationship ended up working really well and I think it, it you know, it cuts really well. It's beautiful. Had vis effects departments like that. <laughs> it's not, you know, they're they're always keen to do it. The producer um, pulls his hair out, but uh, you know, because it's not cheap. But the, the next clip is the uh, clip of the um, fella going into the water. Do you want to set that up? Yeah, the next clip is we. Th the one you just watched was the one that finished last season. The one you're about to see open season six, and um, it, it it picks up exactly where we left off and. It was quite a long, involved sequence leading up to where, where you'll see a, a po policeman dives into the river to save Ray. And we actually had to shoot most of that. We found a great place underneath the uh, FDR uh, where we could control the light in there and cr make it feel like what it would feel like if it were um, pre-sunrise. Pre uh, so we shot all day long in normal light, shooting, putting green screens in the background, knowing that we, as soon as the light was optimal to match what, where we'd left off last season, that we'd shoot the plates for that and get the stuff of the, uh, actually the police, the stuff of the policeman you'll see jumping into the river was shot during the daytime. It was overcast and 
Um, I love overcast because you can kind of you, you can make it evening, you can make it night, you can do whatever you want with it, and, and um, I certainly had a lot of that uh, when I was cutting my teeth as a cameraman up in Vancouver, where it basically rains all the time. <laughs> they do. Um, we, I, I've had, I've had varying versions of them for years. You can go to the rental houses and they'll, and they'll knock one up for you. But um, uh, lens baby, the lens baby people are actually making one with a PL mount, and uh, it, it, it's. Um, you know, you can get it for like 300 bucks, whereas as you, you know, you get one to you get you know originally Claremont cameras and or Otto Nemans, who I who I've been wor working with a lot, um, charge you an absolute fortune for it because it's movie stuff. But uh, yeah, so that's the, the way to. We don't we don't do that kind of thing that much, but we want it to be very much in Ray's head at that point, and um, it was also it was uh, done in the studio. All our driving stuff, by the way, is done on green screen. Um, I, haven't, I haven't had to, thank God, go on an insert car for, for a l really long time, thank God. Because, uh, you know, the, the amount of time that, for instance, Ray does spend in cars, you, it, it would just be absolutely uh, onerous to have to go out and do it. And if you want to see how we do our driving stuff, and I, and I do think our driving stuff is quite good, it's uh, um, done on green screen. You can go on my on Instagram at RBMASC, and there's a little 40-second video that um, shows the rig that we w that we've cooked up and that um, uh, DPs who've come and visited have all run off and stolen from us. But uh, uh, anyway, it's it, it it does work really well. We're we're quite proud of our our uh, process work. What lenses are you using otherwise? Uh, we use uh, almost exclusively Cook uh, primes. I try to shoot as much as I can on on Cook primes. We don't carry a long zoom, thank God. Um, uh, we try and keep our lens palette on the show has always been somewhere between a 27 and maybe a 65. We try to keep it right in the middle there. We don't go really super long telephoto. We don't go crazy wide. You know, rules are meant to be broken, and at, at the right times we, we will do that, of course. But um, I, if, if I could shoot an entire episode just on a, on a Cook 40 millimeter, I'd, I'd be really happy. That's the most important takeaway of the evening. Um, that's how you're getting the subtlety in the sh in the low tones. Um, I'm, what I'm suggesting is if you were relying on zooms like so many TV shows do. Uh, yeah, um, you'd have a harder time doing that. It's true. Um, you know, we you know cook the, the S fours, which I which I've been using for years now. Um, they only go to a two stop, which is you know I, I, it, it's tough enough for the focus pullers at that rate. So you know I I don't. Uh, for instance, on Westworld, we we had uh, we, we were using the Leicas, which are one fours, and um, it was it was pretty tough. And you know, you, you it's just you got to give the guys a break. And um, uh, certainly on other shows I've done, I, ne I never go wider than a two eight, just just for efficiency's sake, because you most of the time tight so time so tight you can't be going again, you know, with a great performance, and because it was out of focus, that's just that's just um, self indulgence, I think. Otherwise. Speaking of Westworld, the next uh, sh uh, clip is from Westworld. Could you see the plugged up shadows? Not from where I was sitting, but um, yeah, you know, the, the, the it, it was. I was so excited to go back to be get to go back after. Not, I, I, I don't think I shot film for about five years, and um, I was really excited about it. And uh, but I also forgot how hard it was. I mean, I went home from work at the end of that, you know, day on that tire than I'd been in a really long time, and a lot of it was m mental fatigue because <laughs> I had to go back to actually imagining what it was going to look like, and then instead of being able to look at a, th at a monitor and see it, you know, you kind of forget about some of these things. And um, on the other hand, it was really exciting being the only one on set, once again, who actually knew what it was going to look like tomorrow when the dailies came back. That was kind of great. Having said that, you know they 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 didn't have the money. And this is HBO with a big budget. They still didn't have the money to do more than a 2K transfer. So you know, film's capable of about six, and um, we didn't do it. I mean, maybe someday they'll go back and 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 do that. I don't know, and and it will look even more impressive. But do a high dynamic range transfer. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, hopefully, you know. But but I know they won't. They you know, it's 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 extremely unlikely that they'll go back to the negative and retransfer that. They'll have to you know work with whatever they've they've uh, whatever they came out of with the uh, original transfer off the neg because it would be too hard to go back to the negative. There are a couple of advantages to film. I think I think the biggest one, and I think Chris Nolan's probably talked about it, and that's why we did it here because uh, his little brother Jonah is the showrunner on it. 
Um, something does happen when you're shooting film and everybody knows that there's a finite amount of time in that camera and it's a big deal when they say, you know, roll it in action. It's a much bigger deal when even, you know, just 35 millimeters rolling through the camera as opposed to the nasty habit that so many episodic directors have gotten into where they'll say, keep it rolling, go back to once, go back to once, keep it rolling, keep it rolling. Having a front row seat on set year in and year out, I see how frustrating that makes, how frustrated that makes the actors. Th you know, they don't know, you know, which, well, you know, which one is it. It's just not the same. So, I mean, film does do that. But after a season of this, <laughs> and I'm, um, I'm getting old, and, um, or I'm starting to feel it anyway, I'm feeling those long days, and they were very long on this show. Um, I really, <laughs> I decided that the principal advantage of film was that there's lots of mag cases around to sit on. <laughs> <laughs> w what did you have in those lanterns on the wall? Uh, I think we had, I had them put, uh, like, typically what I would do is put, um, they'd wire them for a really heavy bulb, like a 150 watt bulb, and then dim them way down, and we put them on a little bit of a flicker generator. I generally, I, I kind of hate those automatic flicker generators. I always, I, those little magic gadgets or whatever they're called, I usually want to punt them, but um, the case uh, that here was that we just didn't have time to sort of do it any more organically than that, so I kind of had to live with it. I also didn't love how the, um, the set didn't really work for us. We, we'd repurposed one that was, was on one of the many uh, western backlots kicking around north of LA, and um, it, it wasn't my favorite set to photograph, but at the end of the day, unlike a lot of the more cinematic scenes on that show, it really was about those two guys' faces and some really pretty great acting, and, and you know, that sort of <laughs> mollified me in terms of not being thrilled about what a wide shot was gonna look like in there. Now we're gonna switch to uh, Game of Thrones. All right. And um, we have a series of clips. Uh, I'm not sure which one is coming. Yeah, I'm not either, but. Uh, one, it's, uh, there's a banquet, like a, like a wedding of some sort or something's going on. I, I can just, I, I didn't see that episode. I did so quite I a, a few of them. Let, let's, let's, let's roll it okay, and find out. We'll talk about it afterwards. Watch the low I light. I we, we tried to have as, as, as uh, good a mixture of stuff from what I was able to get my hands on, so uh, here goes. I think you candlelit this one. Is that possible? I, I candlelit a lot of stuff on yeah. the show using uh, triple wick candles. Do you all know what triple wick candles are? I thought it was a brilliant movie idea. It's basically they have candles specially made that with, with two or three or four wicks in them, and um, they got on our case earlier on because apparently before I got there, the, the cameraman would, would put them all in the background and, and they were considered a luxury item um, in that world and they, therefore they thought it was fake because they wouldn't have them on in the daytime. But the real reason they wanted us to cut back was that apparently on season two, they went through about half a million pounds worth of custom made triple wick candles. Um, and uh, that was they were, they were trying to save a little money on that. Now, I thought that was maybe in a modern invention or something, but if you look at, there's some George de la Tour paintings, and, and I reference fine art a lot in my, in my I, I'm never happier with my composition or my lighting than when it looks like if you pulled a frame off of that and stuck it on a wall, it would look like something you'd see in the, in the uh, you know, in the, in, in the Met or in, or in the Louvre or in the, you know, the National Gallery in London or, or in the Mauritius in The Hague. Um, and there are some George de la Tour paintings where someone's holding, and I'd never really looked at them before, but they're holding candles with like six wicks on them. And of course, de la Tour was, you know, very, he's, he's very inspirational for a lot of cinematographers and in terms of his light and use of light. You know, there's nothing new under the sun, really. So, uh, Ari Alexa? Ari Alexa, Cook Prime lenses, probably shooting at around a 2.8 uh, on the interiors. Uh, lots of candlelight. I try to, I, I just, I, it, I was able to, on the show, um, uh, I just found that it felt better the more naturally lit it was. And, and uh, usually I'd, I'd pump the ASA up to about 1280. And in one case, I, I, a couple of famous cases that they didn't know about until I was doing a thing like this, I admitted that I'd gone to 1600, which we were, we, we were strictly forbidden to do, but sometimes you gotta do it. And I did it and nobody noticed, so. Uh, <laughs> Is this recorded to ProRes? They were recording to Kodak, uh, these, these sort of already antiquated Kodak decks, but I think it was on a ProRes Pro uh, base. I can't tell you this. this I'm just this curious. It's too long ago. Okay. That's what the Red Wedding. 
What um, uh, filtration are you? There was a glow around all the. Um, I used a. Uh, I, I I've been for several years now. I've been using Schneider Hollywood Black Magics, um, just a very 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 light one, like an eighth or a quarter. Um, as a rule, coming onto that, when, when, when you come on to begin, come to shoot Game of Thrones, what they do, and in the way they maintain so much consistency, um, because in a typical season there were five directors with teamed with five DPs, each doing two episodes, um, and you know d during prep it was kind of an interesting situation because all five of you uh, DPs would be sitting in a room scratching your head trying to figure out how the hell you were going to you know solve the individual problems that we were faced with production-wise. Um, but what they do is they, they handed us all, it's kind of genius, they handed us all a, um, uh, an iPad with uh, frame grabs from every set that had ever been photographed and uh, with you know, reference material from multiple frames so that nobody went in and tried to reinvent the wheel or anything. But the interesting thing was going in there was a lot of us, you know, some of us would we'd, we'd be faced with some of these huge sets like the, the gigantic throne room set. Um, the truth is we were so on the same page in terms of trying to keep the light as natural as possible that a lot of the time, you know, it doesn't matter how you want to light it, but it's, it's how you can light it for one thing and, and also how the location speaks to you and, and demands to be lit. And, and, you know, most of us listen to that. And, and I think if you watch from episode to episode, you don't see a lot of difference between the, uh, from one DP and another. We, we were uh, pretty good at keeping it consistent. Um, what I want to talk about with, with this, what I was most proud about with this episode, and obviously it worked quite well considering the stir that it caused around the world when it aired. Um, if you've ever watched any of those YouTubes of people reacting to uh, what follows, what you just saw. Pressure on this, this, this was the episode that the two showrunners, um, Dan, Dan Weiss and David Benioff, had looked forward to from the time they started write the series because they knew it was going to I don't, I don't think they, they quite realized how big the impact was going to be, but they knew it was going to be pretty, it, it was going to be a shocker. And uh, the pressure on David Nutter, the director, and I to really nail this was, was nothing like nothing I've ever uh, experienced before in, in, in my career. And from the get-go, you know, we, we, we knew where the sets were going to be. We'd rehearsed stuff and, and, and well in advance. And um, I was trying to figure out how the photography could help the surprise of what happens. Um, and so the, now th that first thing you saw, scene you saw where, where they're, they, they Rob Stark has come and he's, he's basically got to eat shit um, for Walder because he's, he's broken a, a promise. Um, the last time we were in that set was on the previous season and it was really cold and grim and I wanted the audience to feel like, you know, things could go either way here because the audience was desperate for things to work out for Rob. Everybody loved him and, and, and Catelyn, his mom. And... Um, but I, but I wanted to keep the tension there as much as I could. So I lit it just as grim as it was when, when we saw it in season two. And uh, really moody. All we had were some, some big lights outside the set, pushing some daylight in, some soft daylight, and some, a bit of atmosphere, that which I use a lot to give me my fill level to open the blacks up a bit. Um, and then the, the, then the episode cuts away to a bunch of other exciting action all over the place. And then we cut back to the wedding scene. And at that point, we introduced a few more candles and we warmed it up a little bit and I saw a little bit more fill so that it wasn't quite as moody because, you know, Game of Thrones, at the best of times, their, their interiors are very dark and there's a lot of dark shadows where bad stuff can be, can be lurking. And um, I wanted to open it up a bit and warm it up a bit. We had a little bit of soft blue light coming in from outside as if it was um, twilight. To get a, I, I, I love I love using the light if if, if I know they're not going to mess around with it editorially to to get a sense of, of time passage and um, it has bit me in the backside a few times when they've decided to restructure some scenes and something I shot for dusk is now playing at three o'clock in the afternoon but um, in this case I was pretty confident that that wasn't going to happen um, and I wanted to warm it up a little bit there's a few smiles being thrown in you know amongst the actors in it and it's and and I wanted to give the audience a sense that maybe this is going to work out. Maybe things are going to be okay. And then when we got into the banquet scene, um, if you look carefully, th th there's no dark shadows at the initial part of the banquet during the, during the lit. There's no, normally those walls would all be falling off to black. And you, wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't see anything back there. You wouldn't even see probably how deep the, how, or how large the room was. And 
I wanted to light that set up like it was as close to a Disney movie as Game of Thrones was ever going to get so that the audience would be absolutely sure that they were going to get a really happy ending here. Um, and b to do that organically, I, ha I went to the art department and had them like double and triple the number of candlesticks that they, that they peppered all the tables with and increased the number of torches. And that alone, I think that was a scene where I did that I did shoot at 1600 ISO. Um, we put a little bit of atmosphere in, although all those candles also threw a lot of smoke. Um, and sometimes you actually, I I it got too much. And we had a tiny bit of fill light from overhead, very, very soft fill light. Um, and I, you know, I explained my theory to the, my idea to the, uh, to the producers and to the director, and they said, yeah, but it, you know, it can't be like that when, when, when the shit happens. So um, I, my plan was to have, because most of the revelers leave the room with the, with the bridal couple, um, I had them arranged so that the extras picked up most, almost all the candlelight, and that way they removed it organically from the room as they took them down the hall. Now, if you'd watched the master shot, you would have seen this wonderful, and it was left uncut, which is how I would have cut it. The room would have slowly gotten darker as, 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 as the light left the room, but as it was, you still get a sense of that. You see the, the light being carried out, and once the door has been shut, if you go back and look at it again, it, that room is much darker and much spookier now. And, and even then, I think people didn't really twig that anything bad was going to happen until that cello kicked in, and, uh, and then uh, the is uh, television history. Where was the location? Uh, that was a, st a set they built in the uh, Titanic Studios, they're called, in on the Belfast Harbor. Um, they've got, there's a, there's, there's a gigantic building on the site of the uh, old Harlan and Wolf shipyards in Belfast, where, among other things, they built the Titanic. Um, it's been quartered up into four stages, and then the city also built two more stages there, and they were absolutely filled to the rafters with all our standing sets, and uh, that was one of them. Um, let's move on to the next clip. Um, I want to make sure we have time to see everything. I'm not sure what's... Is this in Belfast, too? Uh, that was also, that was in a uh, abandoned linen mill about 45 minutes side outside of Belfast um, that the sound man hated, but I didn't mind. Um, it's about the sun. Having said that, this, this set, I, we all, all the DPs hated this set. It was, it, it really was what it looked like. It was a cave. It had, it had been sort of under-constructed because I don't think they, they thought that they were going to end up using it as much as they did. And obviously, you know, if they know they're going to be using a set a great deal, they, they put all their eggs in that. And um, in this case, um, the principal reason that the DPs didn't like it was that all we had, the, the only place to push any daylight in from was through the mouth. Uh, it supposedly it was like several hundred feet up on a, on a cliffside overlooking the ocean. And the backing was too close, and it was just a two-tone, a light blue and a dark blue backing for sea and sky. And, um, you know, you want to use that as your, as your daylight source. So a lot of us were doing the same thing. We were, we were just pounding as much light on it and turning it into a bounce as we could and then putting some, in, in some smoke in and saying, you know, uh, well, it's foggy. And um, that, I, that was getting really old. And I, I, for my second scene in here, I, I really, really didn't want to do that. The... Um, setting in, in, in the second scene was, um, first of all, it was first thing in the morning and some momentous new light is being thrown on the, on the, on the situation. And I had an idea and at last minute just went in early with the gaffer and said, I saw, you know, let's just try something. So we, we threw some, some extra blue light on the backing to, to make it feel sort of early morning out, put a bunch of smoke in. And I took a 5K, I took the barn doors off of it, I put some extra CTO gel on it and just stood it there on the stand, ho uh, hoping that the smoke would hide the stand when it was backlit, and just put the 5K right in the shot and pointed it right at the lens and, um, and, and helped it out with, a, uh, with another 10K off camera to just sort of ex extend uh, what it could do because I, I actually had to dim it a bit in order to for it to look as, the way it, as photographable as it was. And... Um, it worked pretty well. I was I was pretty happy with it. Um, the uh, they have among other other rules um, that they'd previously established. They didn't like flares, and it flared a couple of times, so they weren't thrilled about that. But um, I thought it looked pretty great, and and a, 
and uh, everybody else has been copying it ever since. Ever since. Uh, that's what I did was, uh, exactly two years ago. Right now, we were shooting that in in central Spain. Uh, we had 18 days um, to do it, um, which sounds like a lot, but we only had about eight hours of daylight, usable daylight per day, um, uh, and um, that was the. Uh, you know, people ask me, but you know, it must have been so much fun shooting that. You know what? It's really not that much fun shooting that something like that. Um, it's really fun shooting something like The Red Wedding where it's all about actors and a nice set and the director and lighting. And when you, when you get into something like this, there are so many things to consider. Um, you've got, you know, like all these stuntmen, you've got vis effects requirements. You can, you know, you'll spend a whole day just sitting there um, tiling um, and, and doing crowd extension. Um, so, I mean, for a cinematographer, it's quite, you know, the only excitement you get is whether or not the cloud is going to clear in time so that each of those plates looks exactly the same lighting-wise. Can you explain tiling and crowd extension? Yeah, we, we, we obviously we do a lot. We had a lot of extras there. We had, you know, um, a, a, at least, I don't know, I think we had 300, 400, uh, you know, and, and, and we'd certainly, we'd sh years before we shot in Morocco, we had 800 but we needed it to look like 20,000. So what you need to do, you, what you do is you lock the camera off and you line up your troops and you roll and then you move them all down the line. You do it again and again and again. And um, it's exciting, I guess, for the vis effects department, but it's not for me and there's no lighting involved. Um, we didn't have, we had, you know, uh, silks and stuff like that available to us for close-ups, but I never had time to use any of them anyway. We were, we were just too up against the gun um, uh, uh, time-wise, schedule-wise. It was literally, we, 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 we the genesis of a scene like this is it started months earlier with a, with a location scout and a beat sheet with, and, and then followed by a shot list to make sure, you know, to decide what those shots were that were gonna cover each of the beats in the script. That's followed by a storyboard. That's followed by an animatic, and so basically the show, the, the, the whole thing's been made in what looks like a crude video game um, video that it, we all walk in with. So the entire crew knows what we're going to be doing, and it's kind of like you know what Hitchcock used to say was like you know the fun part of making a movie was 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 planning it and storyboarding it ahead of time. The shooting part was the boring part, and um, I, I enjoyed watching this a lot more than I enjoyed shooting it, I can tell you that. What was your schedule for this, by the way? We had 18 days. Um, that show, and in the UK, and it's extremely civilized, only work 10-hour days. Eight in the morning, they finish at six every night. And uh, for someone who's come from the North American system where you never work less than 12, and usually it's more like 14 or 15, um, I didn't know what to do with myself when I first got over there. I was, going, I was home from work at 6.15 in my apartment in Belfast, <laughs> completely at loose ends, but... Uh, you do get used to uh, having a life pretty quickly. It's kind of great. And, and when people ask me why the show is so good, I, I, I think a small component is that it's made by people who aren't completely exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> do we have time for Q&A. A few questions. Hey, how's it going? Um, I just had a quick question about the one of the scenes from Ray Donovan. Um, I was wondering how you did uh, one of the shots. It like pulls back from the bridge, and then the cop bangs the guy against the the window. I was just wondering how you did that. That was uh, that was um, um, there. Were, there were some natural abutments and um, holding the bridge up, and we filled the in center with green screen because we had to shoot that at about you know around noon, and we uh, we did track the camera back and then slam the guy's face into the window, and then um, I. You know, in, in a perfect world, when we shot the plate for it, we would have done a bit of a pullback as well. It's certainly on Game of Thrones, the way they do things, which is like very buttoned down. We would have matched that camera move um, so that it worked as well as possible. Um, in this case, they, they did it digitally in post. They, we shot the plate when the light was good, and then they, then, then they simulated the pullback uh, in, in VisFX. Pretty convincing. Thank you, Robert. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, I'm a writer filmmaker, so my question's coming from that perspective. Um, when you, I was listening to the podcast uh, b by John Nolan and, and uh, Lisa Joy on the Writers Guild uh, podcast, and they were talking about how they had a lot of time for the first episode of Westworld, and they had a lot of time to sort of think about the visual aspect of the show and how it would sort of express itself visually, because uh, I believe he directed the first, uh, the pilot also. 
Um, in terms of the director-DP relationship and how you arrive at sort of the visual look of the show, the general answer always is photos, looking at clips and videos and things of that nature. But I'd like to know if you can give me more specific components of what that actually ends up being, whether it's lens choices, color palettes, you know, anything along those lines. Uh, well, I actually didn't shoot the pilot for Westworld. That was shot by Paul Cameron. Having, having said that, they went back and they did a major bit of recasting and threw out about 15 or 20 minutes of material which from the pilot, which I did reshoot. Um, but getting back to the, the main part of your question, yeah, yeah, the you know when I when I have gone in on on series, you you work closely with the art department, and usually a lot of uh, a lot of source material and reference material is pulled. And for instance, when when Matt Shackman and I were preparing to do uh, the episode that you just saw the footage of, um, we looked at a lot of stuff, and and we obviously we referenced westerns a great deal, John Ford. Um, uh, and uh, and um, it's you know like Saving Private Ryan either even you know in terms of how Jamie is experiencing you know the battle and stuff we wanted you know those were the those were the uh, the visual that was the visual shorthand we used to sort of get everybody on board so they knew what it was we were after so y there yeah, yes there's usually a lot of that sort of thing and it just it just streamlines getting everybody on board with how it looks. But having the art department also drew some amazing uh, uh, sketches that ended up looking remarkably like what the finished product looks like. I'm wondering, uh, working on two shows that seem really very different, Ray Donovan and Game of Thrones, what are the big differences in how you work or takeaways or even interesting things that you still do in both? I mean. Not really any difference at all. I mean, I, I'm, uh, you know, I, I love both of them. You know, one of them I, I call medieval noir, and the other one's L.A. noir, <laughs> and um, and I like working dark. I mean, I, you know, I sort of um, my, my career really kind of took off when I was doing a series called Millennium back in the '90s for Chris Carter, which was sort of renowned for how dark it was. And the big reason we were able to get away with that was Chris had so much power at the time he could force the network to uh, get off my back and let me make it as, as dark and, and moody as we wanted to. And that's the kind of stuff that I like doing. I mean, I've done, I've done a musical, I've done comedies and, and all that sort of thing, and, and that's all really fun. And you go home in a much better mood at the end of the day than you do from some of these ones, but, but professionally, you know, working down in the toe and the shadows and stuff, that's, that's, that's really the fun place to be. I, I, I don't think anybody becomes a cinematographer to shoot sitcoms. It's to do this kind of stuff. Gordon Willis kept coming to mind, but I didn't want to raise that. Well, Gordon Willis is definitely soaked into my, uh, you know, bread in my bones almost. So, and, and you know, so, yeah, you know, those are, that's where I've come from. And interestingly, I was just doing a, a, a similar thing to this in, in Austin a couple of days ago, and... Um, most of the kid, most of the guys were like, you know, most of the people in the audience were in th were in their twenties. Um, only one knew who Gordon Willis was. Only one knew who Conrad Hall was. I was kind of horrified. I talked about, you know, a, a, a great story about the time I I crawled through the woods as a kid to watch them filming McCabe and Mrs. Miller in the in the in this mountainside studio up near where I lived in in, in Vancouver, and um, nobody knew who Vilma Sigmund was either. I mean. Film schools are falling down on their uh, job, I think. You should be teaching. Hmm? You'd be a great teacher. <laughs> I don't know. A question up front here. Um, regarding the two As a cinematographer, do you look at previous work of actors and say to yourself, well, obviously, Anthony Hopkins, Science of the Lambs, this is such an image. Do you take that into consideration and say, how can I light this guy's face like no one else has lit it before? Can I, as a cinematographer, can I tell a certain story or is that something that's discussed with the director or do you take any sort of vision with the talent's face? I, I tend not to go, I think maybe the reason why I, 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 I like TV as much or more than movies is I like to walk in without a lot of stuff nailed down ahead of time and see how the location speaks to me because locations will always demand to be lit a certain way and if you try and impose a look on it that you had in your head ahead of time or that you loved in some movie or something like that you're gonna lose it's not gonna feel right and the lighting of the actors obviously you know in some cases they really need to look good I've been working with Susan Sarandon this year and, and you know that's always a consideration um, but but 
really, if it, uh, it, what's it, it's way more important to me that the lighting feel like it's in this room and it's real and that there's absolutely nothing throwing the audience out of the story that, that's not going to keep them engaged with the actor. And, and, you know, and, and the other thing is I do try to keep something in the eyes all the time no matter how low light the level is. And for years I've been using a, a really cheap little light, it's called a Fellini, which I think is a genius name. Um, it's just, it, it's like, it's, it, I, I stick double A's in it, I, I, I Velcro it to the bottom of the matte box, I can dial it down really dark so that even in pitch dark there's still a little something in the eyes and the actors appreciate that and, and I think it's important. But no, I, I, don't, I, don't, uh, I don't reference that stuff. And, and, and you mentioned Anthony Hopkins, he, I think they, when they cast him, I think they were really hoping that they were going to get a Hannibal Lecter and he was hell-bent on not giving it to them. As far as your involvement um, with a show like Game of Thrones, when you get the boards, are you uh, do you have a lot of input in the shot list in the boards, or is it huge similar amount. to like a huge amount more than any other show I've ever been on? Um, and and literally, um, they put a very high value on how it looks, obviously, and uh, and 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 way more pressure and responsibility on the DP to make sure that it that it it does and. Um, they will do, they will accommodate, I've, I've never, even on big features, I've never been accommodated as much as, as I am on Game of Thrones. And, and that's why the cinematographers, all of us who worked on it, love working on that show because you're given full support and they will, the, you know, they, it, believe it or not, HBO doesn't pay as well as, as some other shows. You'd probably make more money working on, a, on, a, on, 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 you know, Hawaii Five-0 or something, but it's not the same experience. And, and but what they will do is they will give you absolutely whatever you need to make it look as good as it needs to be, except time. <laughs> this has been a spectacular evening. I want to thank on behalf of Sight, Sound, and Story, Robert McLaughlin. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. Since we're trying something new here with the podcast, we're really glad you tuned in today. We've got a huge archive of these panels, and we're excited to be releasing them in this format on a more regular basis. So please subscribe and give us a rating. That definitely helps more people find us. If you want to see a video version of this panel, along with some more in-depth clip analysis from Bruce, check out our Manhattan Edit Workshop YouTube page. And hey, if you want to learn more about video editing, check out MewShop.com. That's M-E-W-Shop.com for lists of our regular upcoming classes. Also, you can follow us on social media. We've got Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, and that's where you can find the latest updates on what's next from us here at Manhattan Edit Workshop. Thanks, everybody.